Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the all-new, all-awesome podcast. This is Danny Barham, and I'm here with another episode. And, man, we're getting on almost one year of the podcast. We're almost up to episode 52, and uh, I can't believe it, but I've been dedicated to doing one episode a week for a year uh, during this pandemic, and... uh, I'm looking forward to, after having a year's worth of episodes, maybe taking a little bit of a step back and trying to feel uh, out kind of how I can make the podcast even bigger and better going forward. But that being said, uh, thank you again for listening. Follow me at uh, on Twitter at, at Danny Barham, which is first name and last name, uh, and follow our Facebook page. Uh, at the all-new, all-awesome, and you'll never miss an episode. Um, I did want to talk for a minute today. Just, you know, I've only talked uh, a handful of times, I think, about kind of writing and the pursuit of a writing career on the podcast. And, you know, I don't want to make this into a podcast specifically about writing because that's not the intent, but, you know, every so often I might talk about, you know, some questions that I get about writing and, you know, the, the caveat is of course that, um, nobody has the answers (laughs) for the most part. And certainly someone like myself who, you know, is looking to get, uh, that foothold on the industry and to, uh, you know, make a career as a working writer, uh, I certainly am far from having all the answers. Uh, But, you know, I do have a lot of experience at this point, you know, trying to open doors for myself and trying out different avenues of how to break in. So, you know, I have some uh, wisdom, I guess, that I can try and pass on. But, um you know, the, the truth of the matter is that sometimes it just boils down to a matter of personal preference and what works for you and what makes the most sense for you given your circumstances, whether it's financial or in terms of what kind of network you have or where you're located geographically. Um, all of that factors in um, if you're trying to be a writer for film or TV. Um, but, you know, one thing that gets hotly debated on Twitter and, uh, you know, elsewhere is this whole issue of writing contests. And it's something that I will often weigh in about just because I do have a lot of experience with writing contests and certainly to some extent, at least I've benefited them, but I've also seen some of the downsides as well. Um, You know, and to take a step back, the, the reality is, if you're not super familiar with uh, the entertainment industry and how to break into it, the thing is, there are not a lot of easy ways to break into the entertainment industry. Uh, I was very lucky, as I've talked about, to have gotten into uh, the PAGE program uh, you know, after college, and that, for me, was a foot in the door of the industry. 
Um, and at that time, uh, this was again around 2005, 2006, uh, the reality was that a lot of people that entered into the PAGE program, their ultimate goal was to become uh, a writer or a director or even an actor. And that, the program was uh, a way for people to indirectly start down that career path. But I think there was always a uh, discrepancy there where, you know, even though that was why a lot of people entered into the program, what you were doing in the program, you know, sort of working in the more corporate side of the business, um, sometimes in a more creative side like development, but sometimes in uh, other areas like PR or, uh, you know, marketing or production or whatever it may be, uh, you know, you weren't always, you weren't necessarily getting kind of any direct experience writing. You were getting more corporate experience. And so the page program today is much more about uh, kind of business oriented rotations and, and assignments and preparing people more for the more businessy side of the entertainment industry. Um, so, you know, even something like the page program, I wouldn't say it's really a viable way, especially now to get started as a writer. Uh, other ways include, and I've talked about this before, but sort of getting in on the ground floor of being, uh, a production assistant and trying to work your way up to writer's assistant and eventually to writer. And I've talked about how this is a very, uh, you know, it, it's a tough proposition in a lot of ways because you're probably making not not very much money. You know, you may be making essentially minimum wage. And there's really no guarantee, especially in this world of shorter seasons and shows, you know, frequently getting canceled after one season that you'll really have the opportunity to grow and move up the ladder by going that assistant route. And then, so that then sort of creates the question, then how do you actually become a writer? And there's not a lot of good answers. It's, I think, a sort of um, all of the above type of strategy that includes a lot of networking, that includes uh, just trying to get your work out there, that includes querying managers and trying to get representation. Um, and so it's a real slog at times and it's not easy, but, you know, contests are out there and they, um, you know, offer uh, a potential way to get more attention for your writing that's very attractive because there's not a lot of other ways to sort of get your writing out there in any kind of meaningful way, especially if you're not already an insider in the industry. Um, but, you know, some people look at contests and say, okay, you've got to pay to enter a lot of them. Uh, they, you know, may or may not um, have readers that are experienced or that, uh, you know, are necessarily the best judges, you never know. It can be a crapshoot. Um, and, you know, you just don't always know. Like, there's some contests that are more reputable, some that are not. 
some that are sort of in this weird middle ground. Um, and you could even do so well as to win a contest and not have it amount to anything if you don't play your cards right. Um, but for me, I think here's, I guess, my background on this is that uh, when I first moved to L.A., you know, I had heard about, I feel like there were maybe two or three contests that were like really well known and that people said, well, maybe you should try entering them. Um, and those included the final draft uh, big break uh, contest. They included the the nickel fellowship that's as- associated with the uh, Academy, like of the Academy Awards. Um, and uh, I don't know, maybe one or two others, but those were, those were really the big ones. Um, and, you know, I would look at the winners of those contests and I could tell that, especially then, a lot of it tended to be these, these sort of very prestige type of, you know, movies that were aspiring to be, you know, Oscar winning type of movies. And, you know, knowing that I was writing, you know, sci-fi and fantasy and horror, you know, stuff in the vein of like Buffy and things like that, I just didn't know how my scripts would fit into that at all. And so those contests didn't really seem to be the right thing for me. They didn't really seem worth the effort to, to submit stuff to. And so I didn't really think much about contests in the first couple of years that I was in L.A. And then at some point, um, several years ago, I started getting emails and hearing about uh, a, a company called ScreenCraft that, you know, was sponsoring all these contests. And they seem to have, I forget exactly what, uh, you know, attracted me to them, but I remember feeling like they seemed to have a bit more of like a populist type of attitude. And, you know, they had different genre-based contests and things like that. And that was really appealing to me because if I was entering into a sci-fi contest, for example, that felt a lot more worthwhile than just entering into a contest where I was competing with these very, you know, uh, serious, dramatic types of films uh, and scripts. And so I started getting into ScreenCraft a little bit. And um, I think this was kind of in the early days that they had formed. And, you know, they also were just giving like a really personal touch, like they were emailing me uh, when I would submit stuff and, and, you know, it would be like an actual person saying like, thanks for submitting and we're excited to read your script and all that kind of thing. And, you know, I started to do like pretty well in, uh, some of their contests. And, um, I think the, the capper was that, or the high point of that initial round of submissions was that a pilot I had written a sci-fi pilot called Alt Alex that I've talked about before in the show. Uh, it was a finalist in their TV pilot competition. And that was the other thing, by the way, was that uh, a lot of the competitions were uh, more for films, um, but ScreenCraft was starting to do ones that were very TV specific or inclusive of TV, which, um, you know, I was writing a lot of TV pilots and so that was appealing to me. 
so I was doing well in ScreenCraft, um, and being a finalist didn't do anything really tangible for me, but it was like a huge confidence booster. And so I do credit being a finalist in ScreenCraft with, if nothing else, um, it sort of just made me feel more confident about my writing, and it made me realize that, like, because I had been doing different genres, I'd been doing comedy, and I was like, you know what, I seem to have really struck a chord here with this sci-fi script. I'm going to kind of stick to that and try and make that more of my brand as a writer. And it was just really good validation and, and encouragement to, to keep going because a lot of times you're just entering stuff into a void um, and having that kind of feedback that's positive is really helpful. So, um, you know, I, I developed a good relationship with that company, ScreenCraft, and felt like I was, you know, uh, treated well by them and that they sort of got the kinds of scripts that I was uh, writing. And then in parallel, there was another company that I discovered called Stage 32 that was a little bit in a similar vein. I think Stage 32, you know, they also have sort of ambitions of being kind of like a LinkedIn for, for writers. And so they do more than just contests, but um, they were also doing like genre contests, TV contests. And so soon after the ScreenCraft finalist placement, uh, Alt Alex actually won the Stage 32 contest. And, um, you know, I was so blown away by that and so surprised and shocked and, you know, some some things came out of that that were pretty tangible, which was I got to meet with different managers and producers around, uh, uh, you know, around L.A. And, uh, you know, again, like, I think in my head at that time, I was like, well, this is it. This is, um, you know, one of these people is going to buy my script or sign me. Uh, to their roster of talent, and this is it, you know? And I think I was definitely a bit naive in thinking that, looking back, and what I didn't quite know was how to best take advantage of those meetings or how to leverage them. And uh, so ultimately, it, you know, it was good experience to have those meetings. And then Another thing that came from it was that they had me uh, assigned a mentor, and that mentor was a really talented uh, writer named Mickey Fisher, who has created series like Extant uh, and uh, um, a few others that have that have aired on on major networks. Um, Reverie is the other the other big series that he created uh, for NBC, and. Um, you know, he was great. I met with him a bunch of times. He had a lot of good advice. And that was, you know, another step in just improving my network and things like that. And then, you know, I also just tried to use that. You know, I tried to sort of go online. And, and that win sort of inspired me to be more vocal, you know, on Twitter um, and on Facebook and on social media about writing and I talked about I started talking about the contest wins and I started talking about my sort of journey you know trying to be a writer and 
it seemed to strike a chord with people and I was getting more followers and, uh, you know, kind of being a part of this writing community that was growing on, on Twitter in particular. And, uh, you know, again, it's like at the end of the day, uh, nothing a hundred percent concrete came out of that contest win in some ways, but in other ways there were a lot of building blocks that were established as part of that, um, that led to different things. So, you know, um, a lot of people ended up reading alt Alex because of, uh, that win. And so, you know, later when the writer's strike happened, uh, and, uh, or sorry, not the writer's strike, but when there was sort of this rift between the WGA and, um, the agencies, uh, and a lot of these ad hoc sort of lists were forming of, of writers and things like that, I was able to get onto this pretty widely circulated WGA list because I had recommendations and endorsements of, of alt Alex from a couple of prominent writers. And one of those writers was Mickey Fisher. And another was a writer named Ben Blacker who wrote for supernatural and, um, you know, among other things who had, I think in, in part read the script because of how well it did in the contest and being on that list subsequently led to more people reading alt alex and uh you know that's just one example and then you know other times for example i had a, a feature script called frank and stein uh that did well it was a finalist in the tracking board launchpad competition which is a, a pretty good contest and they're very reputable and do a great job of sort of promoting the writers that do well in the, in the competition. And, um, that led to a couple different producers reaching out to me. And again, like none of it ultimately amounted to anything. Um, but it was more building blocks. It gave me connections to more producers and it further got my work out there. And then at one point someone did a list of, you know, pre WGA writers who had a feature script that was a finalist or winner of a contest. And so that got me onto that list and that got me more attention. And so it's all these little building blocks that add up. And now uh, another thing is that there is this service Coverfly that I've talked about and they aggregate all of your scores from different contests and give you sort of aggregate scores which can further get you attention and get you onto a list that they call the red list. And so that can help too. And with all that said, I mean, it's not a it's not an ideal system. I mean, a lot of these contests do cost money. A lot of them are not super cheap and it can really add up. So you've got to be really selective. Um you've got to enter the right contests reputable contests and you've got to have the scripts that are good enough to to place so there's a whole thing of just working on your writing and always be writing and 
kind of figuring out when to resurface your your scripts and when to focus on new stuff and uh it can be a pretty tricky balancing act but you know what i would say to writers is i would not dismiss contests altogether i think if you can carve out some money to spend selectively on contests then i would recommend at least try it out you know enter a screen craft enter a stage 32 enter a tracking board find the ones that you think match uh your writing to whatever extent you can whether it's by genre or whatever um and try it out because i think Again, we only unfortunately have so many different options. And this is one of those options. And so look, in an ideal world, contest would probably not be a thing. There would be fellowships that were much more expansive and that took hundreds of people every year and were funded by the big studios. You know, there would be um, you know, a lot of other ways to break in and get a foot in the door. But unfortunately, right now, there are not. And so I think you've got to figure out, okay, what are all the different things I can try and sort of take a stab at as many of them as are feasible um, and and just think about it as, as sort of, you know, what are all the different darts I can throw? Um, you know, and again... That being said, you've also got to take it with a grain of salt. I mean, I've had scripts, and I know this is true of so many writers, that have completely failed to place uh, in a contest and then done extremely well in another contest. Uh, Frankenstein was an example where I originally wrote it because, uh, you know, partly because ScreenCraft announced they were doing a public domain contest where uh, they were looking for scripts with public domain characters. So I was like, oh, I'll do some kind of fun version of Frankenstein. And that sort of got me thinking about Frankenstein. Somehow, even though I was pretty happy with the script, it initially failed to place at all in that ScreenCraft public domain uh, contest that I had created it specifically for. Uh, and yet, it was a finalist in Tracking Board uh, Launchpad, which is, in theory, a much more difficult contest to place in because it takes all kinds of scripts from all genres versus public domain was only uh, a very specific type of script that that they were looking for so you never know and you've got to take it with a grain of salt and you can't get discouraged just because you don't place um and you've got to you've got to try a couple different things in a couple different contests but you've also got to be careful because it can be expensive and you don't want to just waste money uh so it's a tough balancing act but you've got to kind of plan it out and think through how you want to spend your time, how you want to spend your money. Um, 
But I do think that just saying, oh, don't even bother with contests. They have no point. They're worthless or a waste of money. Um, it's easy to say that in theory, but in practice, again, there's not always a ton of other options. And really then all you're left with as a writer, if you're not going the assistant route, um, is to network and just get referrals and, and do it that way, which again is something that you can, you know, every writer should be trying to do, but that may lead to nothing uh, as well. And it can be challenging and you might be someone who's not living in LA. You might be someone who, uh, you know, is not at all in the industry. And I am someone who does live in LA and does work in the entertainment industry. And even with that, uh, networking in a way that produces real referrals or things like that is extremely difficult. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's always good to put yourself out there and make friends and make genuine connections with people. But, you know, it's a huge leap of faith for someone to say, okay, I'm going to refer you to my manager or I'm going to read your script and give it to, you know, writer X, Y, or Z. And even if you have a really good connection with someone, it's a huge long shot that they're going to ever go to that next level for you. Um, so, you know, at some point you have to be proactive and take your fate into your own hands and, you know, you've got to just do it, whatever you possibly can. And so again, I think, you know, contests are, are, are something that, uh, we can leverage and it's a little bit of a gamification, you know, it's a little bit of all right, how can I sort of play this system to my advantage um, with X amount of resources in my disposable, at my disposal and X amount of time to actually write new scripts and make sure they're good quality? How can I use this system that exists to my advantage? Um, and so some of that might be... Uh, you know, entering a contest of a specific genre when you know you have a strong script in that genre. Some of it might be, can you use a site like Coverfly to get your score up a little bit and get onto their red list and use that? Maybe use it in a query letter to a manager um, and point out that you're the top script on Coverfly. Um, but it's every little thing that you can do and none of it might work. Um, but it's just getting that one thing to work that we all are striving for. So it's not easy. Um, and it's a long journey, but, you know, I, I think, uh, contests for better or worse in the way the system exists currently are one of the things that you've got to, if you can try to leverage to your best advantage. So that's my perspective. And uh, if you have any questions, feel free to let me know. I know it's a very, you know, it's, it's a hot topic. It's something that you can debate and discuss a lot. Um, but with that said, I'll be right back with my picks of the week. And I'm going to try and go through them quick because I actually have four picks of the week for this week. So I'll be right back after this. <laughs> 
All right, so I'm back with my picks of the week, and uh, man, I um, watched a lot of movies over this past uh, long weekend for July 4th, and man, I saw some great movies uh, this past weekend. Uh, All four movies that I watched were really good. I liked them a lot, and um, I'll try and zoom through a little bit so I can get to all of them, but um, the first movie I want to talk about is in theaters right now, and it's called Zola. And uh, man, this was a movie I didn't know quite what to expect going in, but I really liked it a lot. Um, you know, Zola, if you haven't heard, it is uh, a movie that is based on this kind of viral Twitter thread from a few years ago. Uh, where this woman uh, kind of detailed, you know, over the course of hundreds of tweets, this crazy story about a weekend where she was convinced to go uh, down to Florida with this woman she had just met. And uh, the the whole thing was that they were going to do some, uh, you know, stripping and dancing and they were going to make a bunch of money and it was going to be easy money and then they were going to come back. Uh, but unwittingly, this woman, Zola, she gets into this crazy situation. She gets in way over her, her head and she gets mixed up with some really uh, bad characters and, and uh, you know, gets into this crazy situation that was far above and beyond what she'd ever anticipated. And so the movie sort of dramatizes this story Um and it, it has a lot of fun with the fact that it's based on a Twitter thread. And uh, it's got a lot of like really fun stylistic things that sort of um, play off of the fact that it's a story that originated on social media. And uh, it has a lot of really dark humor. And uh, it's just a really crazy, um, just, you know... Uh, pulls no punches type of movie. And I'll say up front that it's directed by uh, this this woman named, uh, I'm pro- uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right, but Janitza Bravo. Um, and uh, she does an incredible job with this film. I think she's a pretty new director, um, but she gives it so much uh, style and um, has just some really cool... Uh, aesthetic moments in the movie and just gives it an overall like really interesting vibe, really fun, but also kind of ominous and, uh, you know, harrowing type of vibe really just knocks it out of the park, uh, with this film, uh, uh, you know, visually and sort of stylistically and, and from a, a tonal standpoint, she just kills it. Um, and so, so she's definitely, one to watch, I, I feel like. Um, and then in terms of the actors as well, um, the main woman, Zola, is played by someone named Taylor Page, who I don't think I was really familiar with uh, before. Um, I guess she had... So, so she had had um, uh, kind of a smaller but memorable role in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, so I did remember her being good in that, but beyond that, I, I hadn't recalled seeing her in much. Um, but she just kills it in this movie. Um, she's so charismatic, so funny, 
she has sort of a great deadpan type of, of delivery with, with some of the funny moments in the movie. Um, and again, she's playing this woman, Zola, the title character who, you know, is sort of just sort of enchanted by this woman, Stephanie, she meets um, and just gets roped into this road trip um, that again, just turns out to be crazy and, gets her into some insane and dangerous uh, situations. Um, and again, Taylor Page, just really great in the movie. It's a total breakout performance. Um, and then the other main character, this woman, Stephanie, is played by uh, Riley Keough, who, interesting fact, I just learned, is actually Elvis Presley's granddaughter and the daughter of uh, Lisa Marie Presley. Um, so I didn't realize she was from that uh, lineage, but uh, she's great in the movie and she plays sort of this just, um, you know, kind of white trash, uh, you know, just really questionable woman who, um, you know, comes off initially as just very, um, I don't know, just like kind of a uh, not maybe not the smartest person and pretty sketchy. Um, but charming, but as you get to know her more, you realize she's actually kind of a master manipulator in some ways, um, and and has sort of been the the orchestrator of, of of manipulating Zola to come on this trip with her for very specific reasons that are uh, not quite well intentioned, so to speak. Um, so Riley Keough is great. Um, again, she also is very funny in the movie. Um, it totally makes me want to see her do more comedy. Um, and then uh, Coleman Domingo is awesome uh, in this movie. He also was actually great in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And he's just one of those actors that now I want to see in everything because he just rules in everything he's in. He just has an incredible voice, too, where they actually kind of one of the running jokes of the movie which I guess is, you know, based on on, the, on something that was in the Twitter thread, is that the character who he plays, he's sort of the, call him, you know, the handler of uh, Riley Keough's Stephanie, he'll go in and out of this African accent. So sometimes he talks uh, just American in an American style, and sometimes he'll go into this very pronounced African accent when he's trying to be, like, intimidating. And... Uh, it's just kind of very random, but very uh, funny and entertaining the way he does it. But he's just awesome in this movie. Um, his character is funny, but also very intimidating and scary at times. Um, and so he does a great job. And then um, I'll also just mention this one actor, Nicholas Braun, who plays this character, Derek, who's sort of uh, Stephanie's very uh, dim-witted boyfriend. I guess he's been in a bunch of stuff. Um, uh, apparently he's on the show Succession and um, he's been in a couple other things, but uh, he is hilarious in this movie and his comic timing is amazing. And he has just some, some very memorable moments. So um, Again, great, great cast, a lot of like breakout performances. And, you know, the only other thing I'll say is just, I think this is on the surface, just sort of, it has that like crazy, almost exploitation, 
you know, no holds barred type of feel of a movie like Spring Breakers or something like that. But I also think that there's a lot going on beneath the surface of this movie. It's got a lot to say about America and about um, social media and the way it affects us about, you know, racism, uh, about feminism. Um, it has a really a lot of going, a lot going on. And it almost in that way, reminds me of something like the Florida project where it does, it, it is a very darkly funny and, and really crazy movie, but it has some really interesting things to say. Um, and it's just such an American story for better or worse. I mean, you know, um, I saw, I forget who said it on Twitter, but I saw someone say that, you know, it used to be if you wanted to make like a quintessentially American story, you would you would tell it about like the Midwest, uh, but now you know you you would do it about Florida because, for better or worse, uh, mostly worse in some cases, Florida just has become everything that's that's uh, uniquely uh, weird and bad and poisonous uh, and broken about America, about modern America in 2021, and this is very much a Florida movie and therefore a very america movie um so yeah i highly recommend zola it's in theaters now um and uh i think it's worth checking it out as soon as you can um so check out zola highly recommended one of my favorite movies of of, of the year so far um so i hope it's not forgotten about i hope it gets some maybe awards attention and uh, I, I really, really dug it a lot. So with that said, I'll be right back with my second pick of the week. All right. So my second pick of the week is a movie that I think has just gotten great word of mouth. And it sort of came out of nowhere um, and, and has become kind of a word of mouth hit on uh, digital distribution platforms uh and so you can rent it now and i highly recommend that you do the movie is called werewolves within and i absolutely love this movie it's totally my jam um it's exactly the kind of movie i love it's a horror comedy which you know you don't see a lot of really good horror comedies i feel like there's a very uh you know uh small canon of great horror comedy movies that includes things like, you know, Cabin in the Woods and Zombieland and, um, you know, Shaun of the Dead and, you know, a, a very small group of, of movies that have really nailed it. Um, but man, Werewolves Within uh, just totally kills it. Um it's just such a good script, so entertaining, so funny, and just kind of note perfect in terms of setting up this mystery, this almost whodunit type of mystery, and then paying it off really, really well. Um, so I was so impressed with the movie and how uh, sort of unique it felt and how innovative and um just fun it was too um and so this is a direct 
this movie is directed by a guy named Josh Rubin, who, uh, again, like I was not really familiar with. I guess he did a movie called Scare Me that was well received. But now this is another guy who's totally on my, uh, you know, to watch list because um, he just seems like he has a lot of talent and just has a real gift for comedy and, uh, you know, establishing good, you know, good character dynamics and, and also action too. Um, so he, he did a great job directing this movie. Um, and I'll also mention the writer who's named Mishnah Wolf appropriate, appropriately enough. Um, and, uh, she, this seems to be the first movie she's written. Uh, so man, amazing job. Uh, I, I loved, uh, the script of this movie and thought it was just so smart, um, and clever and funny. So, um, you know, this is, was a very like script heavy and script dependent movie. And so I just wanted to call out the writer specifically, um, and just to take a step back, um, you know, basically this movie, uh, it takes place in kind of a small village or town in, uh, I believe, Vermont. And, um, you know, it's all about this new guy, this this guy who's been assigned to be the new ranger uh, for the town. Um, and so he gets there and he's played by uh, an actor, Sam Richardson, who... You know, he's one of those guys who's very recognizable. I think he's also in the movie Tomorrow War that just came out. Um, and then he's been in stuff like Good Boys. Uh, and he's popped up all over the place. But he is just awesome. He's so funny here. Um, just very charismatic, very likable, and then just really funny. Um, and he plays this ranger who comes to the town Um and as soon as he gets there, there's all kinds of shenanigans happening. You know, he meets all the different eccentric people of the town. But very quickly, there is this fear that, you know, people are getting murdered. And uh, there's all these weird attacks. And people are convinced that there's a werewolf in the town. And so, you know, he's sort of stationed at this lodge where a lot of people you know, stay in the town and sort of like a central location. So in order to stay safe, a bunch of the townspeople kind of all stay at the lodge, but then it becomes clear that one of them for various reasons has to be the werewolf. And so it becomes a sort of really darkly funny, uh, whodunit, you know, clue style, uh, mystery, of okay, so who is actually the the suspect here? Who's and who's the werewolf? And so this character played by Sam Richardson is trying to figure it out, um, and you know then he um, he sort of quickly befriends this woman who's kind of the postal worker, the the post woman uh, of the town, played by Milana uh, Vaintrub. And she, I guess she has this crazy story of she, um, the actress, uh, she was known for like commercials. Like she was like a standout in these AT&T commercials. And now this is, uh, I think one of her first big, um, you know, movie roles. And uh, she's 
great in this movie. Like, you know, she kind of reminds me a little bit of Ellie Kemper from Kimmy Schmidt in The Office, where she has that very, like, uh, girl-next-door type of, of vibe, and uh, she has this kind of, like, uh, innocent humor to her. Um, but, you know, the movie very cleverly kind of plays off of that and subverts things a little bit. But uh, she's very funny in the movie, really good. Can't wait to see her in more stuff. And then there's just, like, a murderer's row of um, funny actors in this. Um, there's a guy, George Basil, who was really funny on the show Crashing with Pete Holmes. There is um, Harvey uh, Guillen, who plays Guillermo on uh, on What We Do in the Shadows, and he's hilarious. Um, Michaela Watkins from A Million Different Things um, is on the show and is great. Um, Cheyenne Jackson. Um the list just goes on and on and everyone is really good and really funny in the movie. And uh, it's just a really, there's, there's so many great characters and so many good character dynamics. There's a lot of really good jokes. There's a lot of like, but there's also a lot of good horror stuff with the werewolf and, you know, a lot of scenes of, of cool werewolves, uh, you know, mystery and, and then when things finally do escalate at the end of the movie and you actually get the, the full werewolf, it's really awesome. And, and the payoff is, is well worth the, the journey to get there. So uh, I really enjoyed this one. Uh, cannot recommend it enough. It's just a totally pleasant surprise. And one of my favorite movies of the year, I would also say about this movie. And I hope everyone watches it. And it becomes deservedly uh, a cult classic because uh, it's just so fun, funny, um, and just cleverly done. So Werewolves Within, you can rent it on Apple, Amazon, etc. Check it out. Highly recommended. One of my favorite movies of the year so far. All right, so my third pick of the week is another uh, sort of fun horror movie, um, also a little bit of a horror comedy, um, called Fear Street 1994. Actually, to clarify, it's called Fear Street Part 1, 1994, um, because this is a new Netflix movie that is intended to be Part 1 of a trilogy and they're actually doing this crazy thing where part one came out this past week, part two comes out the following weekend, this weekend, and then part three comes out the weekend after that. Um, so within three weeks, they're going to get three movies that are all part of this trilogy. And the idea is that the first one takes place in 1994, the second one in 1978, and the third one in 1666. And there's sort of this um, common uh, evil villain that um, is present in all three of the movies and that sort of connects them to each other. And each movie in sort of its own unique way kind of leads into the, the other one. So there are three sort of distinct uh, individual movies, but they're all linked together through this overarching mythology 
which I think is just a really cool idea. It's really fun. It's not something we've seen really done before, um, especially in such a planned from the beginning kind of concerted uh, deliberate way. Uh, so really cool. I really love the idea. Um, and of course, these are all based on uh, a series of books by R.L. Stein of Goosebumps fame. Um, but my sense from what I understand is that these are a much more uh, sort of adult kind of extreme take on the books, which are a little bit more kid or preteen oriented. Um, but so you get like an interesting dynamic with this movie with, with 1994, where um, it's sort of a slightly awkward at times mix of um, having that kind of like all ages sort of goosebumps type vibe, but then also having like really violent kills um, some really gory moments, having some sort of sex and drugs and some other kind of more mature stuff in there. So it's a little bit of a um, varied tone, um, but it does overall just have a really fun vibe to it. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's a movie that sort of has that Stranger Things type of feel of just, um, you know, kids or teens kind of on this adventure and there's a lot of spookiness but it's also all kind of done in in fun um and and designed to like kind of entertain and and just uh it's a good time like it's it's gory and it's scary but it's ultimately kind of a more about fun than anything else um and certainly the movie has a lot of fun with the fact that it's set in 1994 and, uh, you know, I feel like a huge amount of energy in the movie is devoted to, um, you know, evoking 1994. And there's a ton of needle drops with like Rob Zombie and Nine Inch Nails and, uh, uh, you know, Bush and like everything in between in terms of like rock from that era, uh, a lot of like alt rock, uh, type of stuff. And, uh, it's just, um, you know, it's got like kind of a group of teens that are all, um, you know, trying to, uh, you know, escape from this, from this killer and solve this kind of supernatural mystery around the killer. And um, there's a lot of like homages, again, like a lot of tributes to movies of the 90s with everything from Scream to I Know What You Did Last Summer, all sort of referenced. Um including an intro that's a lot of fun that actually is like a very direct homage to uh, Scream um, and has a very kind of similar setup and, and is kind of stunt casting like Scream did uh, with Drew Barrymore uh, back in the day. Um, but again, it's all just like super fun. Um, it's like a very light uh, kind of just boppy type of movie. Um it's got a lot of like neon colors and a lot of, um, you know, candy colors and, and that kind of vibe. Um, and very likable cast. Um, they're not really people that you've seen a lot of before, I don't think, but, um, the leads that include like this, this young actor, uh, Kiana Madeira, she's really good. Um, 
you know, Benjamin Flores Jr., who plays her younger brother, is really good and has some funny moments. Um, so kind of top to bottom, it's just a good cast of very likable kind of teen actors who, who do a good job. And, um, yeah, I won't spend a lot of time on this one just cause again, it's like just kind of a fun, um, you know, entertaining movie. Uh, it, it definitely, you know, has some draggy parts. I feel like it picks up at the end, but you know, the middle can, can be a bit draggy. Um, and it does have a little of that weird, like tonal inconsistency I mentioned, uh, but definitely enjoyed it. It like got me hyped for the second two movies and it's just kind of a really, uh, you know, if you like that kind of fun horror, um, sort of self-aware horror type of vibe, uh, I think you'll, you'll dig it and, uh, it, it's worth a watch for sure. Um, it's also like a good intro to horror type of movie. I could see like, uh, you know, someone who's like 13, 14, just really enjoying it and being inspired by this movie to watch more horror stuff. Um, so yeah, fear street part one, 1994 it's on Netflix and, uh, check it out and, and I'll check back in, you know, at some point and talk about the sequels, which, uh, I'm sure that I will watch, uh, at some t- at some point soon. So, yeah, check it out. Good times, some good horror stuff, uh, some fun horror stuff over the last couple weeks. All right. So I said I had four picks of the week this week, and so here is my fourth and final pick. Uh, and like I said, I watched four movies this past weekend. All four were really good. And uh, the last one I'll talk about here is another one that uh, I would say is among my favorite movies of the year so far. And I really liked it a lot. Um, and it, it's one of those movies that snuck up on me be, because I honestly, until a week or two ago, did not know this movie existed. Um. But the movie is called No Sudden Move, and it's on HBO Max, and it's actually the new movie from, uh, you know, the, the storied director, uh, Steven Sodenberg, uh, who, you know, always does interesting stuff, always does, um, you know, none of his movies are, are really alike, um, one movie to the other, and he's done, obviously, like, Ocean's Eleven, He's done um, horror movies like Unsane. He's done uh, more comedic movies like Logan Lucky. And he's done, uh, you know, last year he did uh, the movie Let Them All Talk with Meryl Streep and Candace Bergen and uh, Diane Wiest, which I really liked a lot. And it was just kind of this really interesting, like, character study with a little bit of, of mystery thrown in, too. Um very underrated movie, I thought. Um, but this year, he's got this No Sudden Move uh, film. And it's a really interesting... Um, it's got a bit of a crime movie type of um, uh, vibe. And it's got uh, a bit of a heist uh, aspect to it. Um, it's got a bit of a noir aspect to it. And uh, it's also a period piece taking place in the 1950s. And basically, um, 
it's it's a little hard to talk about the plot without spoiling anything. Um, but I will say the plot goes in some very interesting directions that are somewhat based or rooted in true events. Um, again, I don't want to spoil it, but to the, the, the basic premise is that um, Benicio del Toro and Don Cheadle play these two sort of, you know, uh, you know, hired thug type dudes in the 1950s. You know, they're both kind of connected to, to organized crime and uh, are sort of freelancers in that world. And they get hired to help with a particular job where it's supposed to be very easy, you know, in and out, um, where basically um, this this guy is going to be sort of uh, kidnapped, uh, essentially, by the mob. Um, and, he, and he's going to be utilized uh, as part of this scheme that they're going to pull and so Del Toro and Cheadle's characters are meant to just like babysit the guy's family while all of this is happening. And it's supposed to be very open and shut. Um, but all kinds of things go wrong. Things get complicated um, and just totally spiral out of control. And it becomes a much bigger story than you would have imagined. And um, the guy who's who they're kidnapping is played by David Harbour from Stranger Things and uh, Hellboy and upcoming from from Black Widow. And um, he is freaking great in this movie. I mean, I was a fan of him from from Stranger Things in particular, but I did not know he had this in him. This is just, in my opinion, easily the best acting I've ever seen from David Harbour. he plays a very almost like Fargo like character who's sort of a very straight laced uh, guy, but uh, on the surface at least who has some, some secrets and some uh, less savory parts of his, of his personality, um, but who gets in way over his head and gets into this crazy situation. And um, you know, it all sort of, again, without spoiling too much, kind of uh, has to do with the fact of who he works for and who his boss is and how he is the key to um, helping to steal something that his boss has in in his possession. Um, And so David Harbour just kills it in this movie. The whole cast is great. Cheadle is great. Del Toro. Um, There's a... uh, Brendan Fraser has a, a a small role, but he's really good. It's great to see him back. Um, there's an actress named Amy Simitz who is fantastic and kind of a scene stealer. Uh, Kieran Culkin is really good. Um, John Hamm is is great in this. So the list goes on and on. It's just a truly um, all star cast and. Soderbergh, you know, he always does interesting things visually. He shoots this entire movie through this kind of fishbowl type lens, uh, which I don't know if I have a strong opinion on it one way or the other. Um, I don't know that it necessarily really added or detracted from the movie, but it's certainly interesting. Like, it gives the movie a really unique uh look so i just thought that is kind of interesting um 
but uh, it, it's just a really, it's also a really well written movie. It's written by Ed Solomon, who's a, a great film uh, writer. And um, it's one of those stories where I think it's very intentionally overly complex and almost confusing in parts. And that's part of the point, I think, where it's that almost Coen Brothers type of MacGuffin type of story where what you start to realize is it's less about the details of the plot and more about, you know, what does it all mean? And, and uh, you know, what is kind of this larger point about, um, you know, a country, America, that you know, creates this, this, you know, kill or be killed type of, uh, every man for himself, you know, attitude and, and, uh, this desire to just do whatever it takes to get a leg up and, and, uh, hustle and scrape and claw for every dollar, even as ultimately, you know, the del Toro and Kido characters, those type of people, they're just, ultimately at the mercy of these huge, powerful titans who are beyond, you know, consequence and who can do whatever they want and manipulate whoever they want. And, um, you know, I think the movie has a lot of interesting things to say about, uh, it's one of those movies that I think, you know, occasionally this theme pops up in, in, in films of, it kind of is telling you what America was built on and how our modern society was often built on crime, corruption, lies. And it's a movie that really gets into that. And I didn't expect that going in, but um, by the end of it, I was like, wow, there was some really uh, profound stuff in this movie. And uh, it kind of low-key sneaks up on you and then really hits you at the end. And uh, I will say... Again, don't want to spoil anything, but there's some there's some cameos in this movie that are are pretty fun too. By the way, so keep an eye out for uh, some some unexpected people to show up. But yeah, I feel like Soderbergh is you know he's great at a lot of different genres, but obviously crime, uh, this type of movie, very much in his wheelhouse. He's great at you know forward momentum and. He's great at setting up tension in scenes. Um, and he's great at sort of uh, having these different kinds of characters interact and establishing that kind of team, you know, dynamic and group dynamic and uh, establishing like tension between those people in the group. So he does a great job here. Um, really like this movie, really interesting, really fascinating. A lot of interesting things to say and just really entertaining. It's like one of those movies where it's just super fun to watch all these great actors bounce off of each other. And they're all really at the top of their game. Like this is the best Benicio Del Toro performance in years, in my opinion. Um, it's the best Don Cheadle performance in years. Um, it's the best, like I said, it's the best David Harbour performance ever, I think. So um, highly recommend it. No Sudden Move, the new Steven Sodenberg movie. It's on HBO Max, and it's really, really good. So that's all I've got for this week. 
Stay tuned next week for my big episode number 52, one year of doing this podcast. And have a great weekend. And, uh, oh, this weekend, very excited to see Black Widow in the theater. So you can be sure I'll probably be talking about that next week here on the podcast. So stay tuned for that. Thank you.